welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. As a nation, we've certainly gone through difficult times, times that, as Thomas Paine said, try men's souls. We've been divided as during the Cold War and the Civil War, but rarely have we been as tribal as we are today. Rarely have we been as willing to throw off facts, science, and reality in the service of a cause. It's almost like we've all joined cults. Little by little, we've been encouraged to eschew our faith in institutions and believe in nothing, which makes us more vulnerable to be made to believe anything. As we throw off critical thinking, as we look for order out of the chaos of creative destruction, as we deal with the consequences of a rapidly changing and technological world, we exhibit so many of the signs of those that fall into cults. And that's our focus today as I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Yanya Lalich. She's a researcher, author, and educator specializing in cults and extremist groups with a particular focus on charismatic relationships and political and other social movements. She was a Fulbright Scholar and is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Cal State University, Chico, and the founder and director of the Center for Research on Influence and Control. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Yanya Lalich to the Who, What, Why podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Jeff. Well, it's my a, honor. It's a delight to have you here. What defines a cult? Is there a, a sort of accepted definition of what a cult is? Uh, yeah, I, I think that most people would agree that a, a cult is a, it's a group or a social movement that, that has a charismatic leader. It has some form of uh, indoctrination program that, that requires the person to, as you were saying earlier, give up their critical thinking and uh, be uh, a loyal, true believer. And um, it generally exploits the members in some way, whether that's financial, physical, or sexual. Um, so I think those are the, the main characteristics. And does the cult need to have some kind of extreme ideology to be effective? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be extreme. It needs the, the charismatic leader will offer some kind of promise of salvation, you know, wh- again, whether that's financial or spiritual. Uh, they'll say that they have the only true path. Um, so it, it may not be necessarily extreme, but it's all-encompassing and it's all-inclusive. It offers you an answer to everything. It gets you to believe that if you, if you stray from that path, then you lose your chance at salvation. Is there a point that cults become unwieldy? Is there a size limitation to cults? I mean, can they em- embrace large, large groups of people, or do they have to be more confined? Well, no, they, they can be of any size. I mean, if you think of, uh, of countries like uh, China under Chairman Mao, right. uh, where he was uh, leading these what he called thought reform programs throughout the country, and the entire country was involved in basically his belief system and honoring him. Um, you know, so we, we've seen it on a national scale. You know, Hitler is another example. So cults can be very large, as we've seen, like with groups over the years, like the the Moon organization, uh, Reverend Moon's group, uh, called, sometimes called the Moonies, or the Hare Krishnas, uh, some of these groups that got very large uh, back in the 70s and 80s, the Children of God. But groups can also be very small. I mean, you can actually have, you know, two or three people be involved in a in a cultic relationship. Uh, so it really depends on sort of the the 
the hold that the leader has on, on his or her followers. And what role does secrecy play in this? Because particularly with the larger ones, it seems like there's less secrecy, but they're still just as effective and just as powerful. Well, yes, secrecy is very important because uh, people uh, get led to believe that they're part of a special elite. And uh, and so there are things that um, they don't know about what might be going on at, at the top level. But then there's also things that they're supposed to hold secret and not divulge. And and that creates uh, what we call this us versus them mentality that you know, we're special, we're the elite, and everybody else is really stupid and messed up. And um, we either have to recruit them so that they see the light, or we can get rid of them, we can ignore them, or we can even kill them, you know, as we see with some of the extremist groups. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about your experience, how you got involved in this whole area of studying cults. Really, it came out of your own personal experience. Yes, that's right. Um, I joined a, a, a political cult um, in the mid-70s. Um, I was 30 years old. I had already graduated from university. I you know, had traveled to different countries, lived in different countries. Um, but it was at the end of the Vietnam War, and I, ha- I moved to San Francisco, and I got involved in sort of you know, leftist politics. And I ended up joining a group. Obviously, I didn't know it was a cult, but, you know, the the story was that we were going to, um, you know, bring about changes in America, social change, you know, fight racism, fight sexism, have social justice. Um, but really, it was, you know, what I now see is was a political cult. The The leader was a woman. And everything we did was about you know, making her appear as this grand individual. And we spent most of our time uh, doing things that aggrandized her. And we worked long hours, 20, 20 hour days, seven days a week. Um, We mostly sat around and criticized each other in these circles. And uh, it was a very harsh environment. And ultimately it had nothing to do with bringing about social change. so when I got out of that, and we actually, eventually we all got out, we, we finally had our revolution and we overthrew our leader, which is very unusual as far as cults go. And so when I got out, I, I moved to New York and I, you know, got my head back together and tried to figure out what had happened to me and, you know, got a job, worked, went into therapy, got myself healed, so to speak. And then at some point I decided to, to go to graduate school and uh, get my PhD. And um, interestingly, while I was in graduate school, the the Heaven's Gate suicides happened, which people might remember was in the mid-90s, the group that uh, committed suicide in in this mansion outside San Diego. And I knew quite a lot about that group and had been working with families and some former members. And so at the time, my advisor for my dissertation said, well, obviously, this is what you're doing your dissertation on. I was like, oh, dear. Um, so that, that became my focus. And then when I graduated, I got the job at Chico State and um, you know, taught regular sociology courses, but also I've written a number of books about cults. And it, it really kind of became my life's work to, to, as I see it, turn a bad thing into a good thing and, and try to educate the public about these groups and, and what the risks are. With respect to the risks, one of the things you talk about is that, that the cult isn't limited to people that are just clueless, that sometimes the best and the brightest can become part of cults. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Cults want people who can perform for them, right? They want people who can run their businesses, who can bring in money, who have good connections, um, you know, who can uh, basically keep the thing going. The cult leaders are usually pretty lazy and they don't do very much. So it's really their lieutenants and, and all the people around them who do everything. So if they, you know, if cults don't want lazy people, they don't want sick people. You know, they're not there to take care of you. You're there to take care of the leader. Uh, so it, it's often, as, as we say, the best and the brightest. And, and I think that's because, uh, you know, people with, with, um, with some experience and some intelligence tend to be more curious. And so they'll tend to check things out or look, you know, look for solutions or you know, want to contribute in some way. And, and these cults will present this facade that you're actually doing something for the social good. Uh, so it's, it's easy to get caught up. And of course, cults want people with money. So, so uh, people from wealthy families are also targeted. Talk about the nature of causes around which cults are formed. Certainly religion is, is a big one. A lot of cults have this religious underpinning. What, are, what about politics? What are the other causes that generally hold cults together? Well, it can really be any cause. I mean, cults, you know, most people just think that cults are, are religious, and, and, and that's why they tend to get away with a lot because people don't want to, you know, especially the courts don't want to mess with religion. But there are all kinds of cults, right? There are UFO cults and therapy cults and martial arts cults. And, um, you know, I, I always say there's probably a chocolate chip cookie cult, <laughs> right? So they really can form around any ideology. And it's basically how that ideology or that belief system is used to con people into thinking that they're doing something you know, to better themselves or better the world or make more money or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, once, once you're in it, it's, it's too late. You, you don't figure it out that you've gotten yourself trapped into an, an exploitative organization. There are also a lot of business cults um, and a lot of what we call these new age training programs that are very cult-like and use the same techniques. And they're everywhere in the business world. You talk about both formal and informal systems of control within cults. Tell us a little mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, cults have to have a structure, uh, even the, the large ones. Um, so they have to have the, the formal uh, methods of control, which will be, you know, the rules and regulations, the very obvious things, like maybe you have to dress a certain way, or maybe you have to eat a certain way or not eat a certain way, or they may, you know, instruct you on how many children to have or not to have or how to raise your children or take your children away from you. So there are these obvious rules and regulations, but then there are the more subtle informal influences, which, which are really uh, in a sense more effective in holding the, the group together. And these are things that, that, that are, you know, common everyday social psychological uh, instruments such as guilt and shame and love and fear. Uh, and certainly peer pressure. Um, I think not, not enough attention is given to peer pressure when we think about cults because people, after a certain age, you know, we tend to pay much more attention to and heed what our, our friends are doing, right, or what our mates are doing. So when when you're in a group like that, you have you have the other members around you and, and you don't want to let them down and, and people are reporting on each other. And so all these 
more subtle ways that get you to conform uh, and comply with the, uh, the rules and the norms of the group um, are really very effective. It also works to separate people from, from others, really, to, to create separation. Oh. Talk about that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, cults will, uh, you know, as I said, they're, they're, they're going to get you to believe that you're part of this special elite group, right? And that the non-believers are, in a sense, um, you know, not worthy of your attention, right? Which is why people tend to be split off from their families or split off from their friends who they're not able to recruit. Uh, so it creates this, you know, sense of superiority and this um, sort of demonization of, of everyone who's in the, quote, outside world. And so that can create, especially in the extremist groups, you know, that can create a lot of trouble where, you know, we, we see it with the white supremacist groups, right, where it's okay to, to bomb abortion clinics or it's okay to go attack gay bars or it's okay to, to kill somebody who's, uh, you know, black or brown. Um, because it, you know, it doesn't matter. They're not really human. They're not like us. Cults also use paranoia as another way to to control people, right? They'll they'll convince you that you know the either the authorities or the outside world is persecuting us and they're coming to get us, and so people are living in this you know this sort of constant state of anxiety and fear, and and that's just another way that that keeps people in check. And there is this obedience, you mentioned it before, obedience to charismatic leaders who tend to be really narcissistic. Explain that. Absolutely, yes. Well, first of all, charisma is kind of this misunderstood concept. Um, people think of charisma as these traits that are inherent in an individual, right? But in fact, charisma is a social relationship, right? Charisma is about how you respond to a person, right? So, for example, you know, someone may think uh, that President Obama, as an example, someone may think President Obama was incredibly charismatic, where other people you know, obviously saw nothing in him or absolutely despised him. So, or you may go to an event with a friend and the guru shows up and everybody's ooing and eyeing over the guru and you're sitting there thinking, what the heck? You know, this guy seems like a con artist to me, right? So charisma is a very personal relationship. But once you have attached yourself in, in what I call this charismatic relationship, you've basically given power to that person. That person then has a hold on you. And that charismatic hold is very difficult to break, and it's very demanding. Uh, the charismatic leader demands all obedience, all devotion, right? And, and so you become entrapped in this, you know, relationship where uh, you basically, after a time through the indoctrination, you learn to sort of punish yourself if you have any doubts or you certainly can't question the leader. You know, there's, there's no give and take. There's no checks and balances. So it becomes a very powerful one-sided relationship. Talk a little bit about recruitment because in many ways it's like a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. Yes. So recruitment happens in phases, and um, interestingly, the, the studies have shown that more than two-thirds of people who get involved in a cult are recruited by a friend, a family member, or a co-worker. So this is very important because it's, 
it's difficult to say no to someone you know, right? So if your coworker keeps inviting you to some seminar, you know, day after day, and finally you'll break down and say, okay, I'll go, right? Just because you don't want to make waves with your coworker or your Uncle Charlie or your brother or whoever it might be who's inviting you to something. So people in cults are basically trained how to recruit. When I was in my cult, I actually led recruitment and advised everybody like how to how to go about uh, sort of asking the right questions to get someone to want to get involved in our group um, so recruitment uh, you know goes in phases you'll get invited to something when you're there you'll get surrounded by people you what we call love bombing right you think you've suddenly met these most wonderful people they'll ask you to come back Uh, Once you come back, you've taken that first step, you've made that first commitment, then it's easier to get you to make the next commitment. Um, So so recruitment's obviously a a very important part of the process. Um, Today, because of the Internet, uh, things have changed a little bit, um, but people do get recruited over the Internet, um, although... Generally, at some point, it does take some kind of personal connection. You know, they'll get you to come somewhere and actually meet people. Um, but, but the Internet has been quite effective uh, for some groups to be able to recruit. Um, on the other hand, the Internet's been very important because there's so much information out there that if you are thinking of going to something or someone's inviting you to something, you can go on the internet and check it out, see what the critics are saying, see what former members are saying. Um, You know, I always say, be a good consumer (laughs) before you jump into something, you know, check it out like you would if you were buying a car. Are we seeing, in your view, an increase in the number of cults these days? Yes, I, I would say there, there are absolutely many more cults today than ever before. Um, and that's because, you know, some cults got very large and people broke off and started their own thing because of what they learned from that group. Um, because of the influence of what we call the New Age movement from the 70s and 80s, where everybody got into, you know, crystals and seances and talking to dead people and ascended beings and channeling and all this this kind of stuff that that got very popular um, from through the New Age movement. That became very fertile ground uh, for more narcissistic con artists to um, start some kind of group. Uh, so we're definitely seeing um, a surge. And also, you know, when when times are are rough, uh, when countries are in turmoil. Um, that's a time when cults can recruit very successfully because people are kind of at a loss and looking looking for answers and looking for solutions. Is there a li- is there a cycle a life cycle to cults? Well, it really depends. I mean, cults, uh, you know, they they obviously start out small. You've got this one person who all that one person needs to do is get one other person around them, and then that person recruits a couple more people. Um, so, you know, cults will grow, they'll go through different phases. Uh, some cults don't get too big. They don't want to get too big. Like again, even in my group, when we got too big, our leader would kind of order a purge and we'd get rid of a bunch of people because I think she figured out she couldn't control more than, you know, a couple of hundred, uh, full-time members. Um, some cults get very huge. Um, and then what, what'll happen over time is if, if the leader dies, 
uh, that may lead to some kind of dissolution. There, there might be a power struggle among some of the top lieutenants. Uh, the, the groups may splinter off. Uh, some groups may actually dissolve when that happens. So it depends on what kind of internal structure the leader set up. If, if the leader is getting elderly and, you know, wants to set up people who can uh, basically carry on charisma by proxy, we call it, and, and carry on the group after his or her death. Uh, so they'll, they'll go through a life cycle like anyone else. But certainly there are some groups now that have been around for decades and decades, you know, and they become intergenerational. Mm-hmm. You mentioned white supremacists before. As you look out at the political landscape today, do you see this, this cult-like aspect of it with, nar- with a narcissistic leader, with the lack of critical thinking, with so many of, of the qualities that we've touched on here? Yeah, I think you're talking about our, our current president. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes, I think, you know, there's definitely a, 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 a cultic uh, surge going on uh, with certainly with things on the right, um, you know, kind of taking hold and acting out. Um, not so much on the left. Uh, unfortunately, I guess the left has never been quite so organized. I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, but um, and certainly around you know around our president and 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 his um, his cabinet and his uh, administration, and uh, he has created this environment where you know he can do no wrong. You know, I think we see this current example with the felt tip pin on the map of where the hurricane's going to go. You know, it's just, you know, he, he has set himself up. I mean, he's even called himself a a godlike figure. Um, And then we've got these, you know, people, several millions of people who absolutely have total faith in him for he can do no wrong. They'll follow him to the ends. As he said, he could stand on fifth Avenue and shoot someone and his followers won't care. And I think we've seen plenty of examples of that. And so I, I find it to be a very troubling time uh, for our country. I mean, one of the things we hear over and over again, and it's hopeful in a way, people say, well, eventually the fever will break. But that isn't the way it normally plays out with cults. No, I don't think. I think um, when you when you get something like this on a national scale, it's very difficult to see how to confront it. Um, you know, I think we, we saw that with, with Nazi Germany. Um, so it, it takes, you know, it takes a national movement to, to confront an, a, a national cult, so to speak. And at this point, the country is certainly not organized in that way. And uh, the, the Democrats in the government seem, seem to be kind of a bit flummoxed about how to proceed. And, um, and I think it's, um, it, it, it's, it's quite scary because we, there are many people who are kind of at their wits end at a loss about what to do. And there are many friends and families who've, um, who sort of given up on even trying to talk to their friends or relatives who, who've become Trumpers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even though dialogue is probably one of the best ways to try to get people to see, uh, you know, the, the, the wrongness, I don't know if that's a word, the wrongness of their thinking or the dangers of their thinking, um, but that hasn't happened on, on, on too much of a level. There, there's a wonderful book called Rising Out of Hatred, 
that that's the story of of a young man who was the son of the guy who started the Daily Stormer, which is you know this mm-hmm. huge white supremacist website. And he ended up going to a nice liberal college in the South, and he met a lot of nice people, and he started dating a Jewish girl, and his friends were very patient with him, and and he eventually broke with his father and with the whole white supremacist ideology, and and it's an incredible book, um, and, and you know, so you think about if we can do that on a on a one by one basis, but how, how much would that take to be able to really bring about you know, some, some counter-influence to, to what's going on right now. Right. I mean, the, the deprogramming aspect, the getting out of it aspect, is the part that is hard to fathom with such a large framework. Mm-hmm. When you talked about your own personal experience and, and getting out of it and, and going through therapy, et cetera, et cetera, it was an individual experience. It's hard to, exactly. to, to imagine how do you deprogram 30 million people. Exactly. Now you're depressing me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 um it's a conundrum, you know, and and um all we can do is hope that, you know, the the tide will turn and 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 will turn in a in a more democratic and I mean that in the, you know, the broadest sense of the right. term, uh will turn in a more democratic way and that we can really get rid of this authoritarianism that's taking over our country and our and our administration. What is it, if if anything, that sometimes turns people, cult members, away from a leader? What is it that they have to do in order to, to really alienate their followers? What does history of cults tell us about that? Well, sometimes they can go too far with something and, and it may have an effect on some of the members. So for example, uh, in the seventies and eighties, we had, there was a group called the children of God, which was led by this guy, David Moses Berg. And, uh, he, he had a lot of sexual problems and he started, you know, having, having multiple wives, telling people they could sleep with each other. Adults could sleep with whoever. And then he got to, starting to say, you know, sex, children should have sex with each other and adults should have sex with children. Um, and when that happened, um, and this was also the group that engaged in what we call flirty fishing. So he would, the women would go out and basically pick up men. They were, they were called prostitutes for Jesus. They would pick up men and have sex with them supposedly to bring them to Jesus. And, and many, many of the women in the group got involved in that, you know, and, and, but when it got to the point where he said, it's okay to have sex with children for some members, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for some members. They said, no, this is too much and I'm leaving. So sometimes the cult leader can, can go a bit too far and may lose some members, um, or may as happened in our case, the whole group busted up because she became so out of control. Um, but, but really it's an individual, it's an individual decision and it'll take something, you know, and again, it's so personal. It could be, you know, I mean, I know a woman I worked with years ago who uh, got cancer. She was in a group, she got cancer and she sat down one day and thought, I don't want to die in this group, you know, and that's what got her to leave. Uh, sometimes it's an age thing. People reach a certain age and they say, what the hell am I doing with my life? I, I got to get out of here. Um, so what's important is if, if, if you know someone in a group, if you have friends, friends or family 
it's always important to try to stay in touch with that person. It's always important to let them know that you're a safe haven, that if they ever want to leave, there's someplace safe that they can come to where they're not going to be humiliated. They're going to just be able to chill out and sleep and do whatever they need to do. Um, because it's the hardest thing someone will ever do is leaving a cult because you're basically throwing away an entire worldview and it means starting your life all over again. And that can be incredibly frightening. Um, so it, it really takes, you know, some kind of moment that, you know, I always say when you're in a group, even if you're a true believer, like I was, there are things along the way that bother you, either things you are asked to participate in or or things you see happening in the group and, and you can't do anything about it at the time, you know, because of the, the discipline and the structure. So all these things kind of get shoved in the back of your head and they're sitting on a little shelf in the back of your head. And at some point, you know, there's going to be one thing too many and that shelf is going to break. And that's when you're going to wake up and say, I've got to get out of here. Now, it doesn't mean you can get out that day. You usually have to make a plan. And certainly it helps if you still have contacts on the outside. Finally, to what degree is, is the law helpful in this regard? What legal mechanisms exist to help people that are in cults? Not very many. It's, it's really been a, 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 difficult, uh, a, a difficult place to try to bring you know, some kind of justice. I mean, I, I've been expert witness in a, in a number of cases. Um, it's, it's hard because, as I said earlier, a, a most people think cults are religious and the courts don't want to deal with religion. Uh, they don't want to touch it at all. Uh, so it's difficult in that way. But if it is a, a, a religious group where you have a pastor or a guru or whatever, um, you know, there, there are restrictions against uh, religious leaders taking advantage of their followers. So if you, if you have the evidence to show the kind of sexual abuse or financial abuse that may have happened. And if you can find an attorney who's willing to take the case, and there aren't many attorneys who will because they, they kind of don't know how to deal with it or they don't, they don't think it'll be successful, so they don't take the case. Um, but there have been some successful cases. I mean, right now, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, there are numbers of cases about the, the child sexual abuse that, that's been going on in that group for decades. And there have been some very big judgments uh, against the organization. Uh, so you can't go to court and say this is a cult. You know, uh, uh, it's not illegal, so to speak, to to have a, to run a cult. But you have to find some kind of other illegal activity that uh, you can bring some kind of legal uh, suit. Dr. Yanya Lalich, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.